Today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from Joe, who, driving home one day, saw a man who had collapsed on the side of the road. What she did next would set her life in a completely new direction. His bicycle was lying next to him and there were a couple of people just stood sort of around him looking very shocked, not looking like anyone was touching him or anything was happening and like they didn't know what to do. So because I'd done a first aid course, I had that split second conversation with myself. Shall I stop? Shall I drive on? What should I do? And I decided to stop and get out of the car and and see if I could give him any assistance. From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Bill Snadden. On the ticker tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. On this episode, Jo tells me why, in her eyes and ours, learning CPR is one of the best things you can ever do. Jo, can you tell me about that day in September 2009 when you're driving through the town of Farnham and you see a man who's collapsed on the side of the road? I was on that day. It was a very ordinary day. First thing to say, there was nothing particularly remarkable about, uh, about it at the time. Uh, and I'd been visiting my parents and I was going home back to London where I lived at the time. And I was actually diverted by roadwork. So I drove away. I wouldn't have driven normally. And as I rounded the corner of a very quiet residential street, I happened to look to my left and I saw a man had collapsed on the pavement. Mm. And your, um, your little baby boy was in the car with you. He was, yeah. He, he was only three months at the time. And fortunately, the minute we'd got in the car, he'd fallen asleep. So that was very helpful. Um, so I just pulled over and put my hazard lights on and sort of jumped out of the car and, and went up to the people who were standing around and just said, you know, what's happened? Has he fallen off his bike? What's What's gone on? And um, what happens next? Well, they... The people that were there said, well, we don't really know. He just fell to the ground. And there was someone on the phone to the ambulance service. So I had a split second of thinking, oh, my goodness, I've got to assess this man and had a quick think back to my first aid course about what I should do. And it's funny because you do have that split second hesitation. But I think the minute you decide to take action, you go for it and the sort of adrenaline kicks in and and it's amazing the way you're taught because you do remember the training. You do remember the kind of doctor's ABC, which gives you somewhere to start. So I went over to him and started sort of checking whether he was responsive and whether he was breathing. And it became clear quite quickly that he wasn't breathing. Uh, he was making a funny gurgling noise, which I later found out was called agonal breathing, which is like a reflex reaction. It's not proper breathing. And he'd had a cardiac arrest. And everyone is around you watching and you're in complete control now. Yes. Uh, And that's something I think you discover about yourself when you're put in that kind of situation. It's not really something you can practice. You know, I found myself being quite clear headed and able to give instructions, which was good. Mm. Um, But I did, again, have another second of thinking, oh, my goodness, I've got to do something on this man that I've practiced on a mannequin in a room however Mm. many months ago. But I started to give him CPR and rescue breath. Uh, and I could hear the person on the phone to the ambulance service saying, oh, yep, yep, there's someone here. Yep, she, uh, yeah, she looks like she knows what she's doing. So that gave me a bit of confidence to carry on. Uh, and so I ended up giving CPR and, and rescue breath for about 
probably 15 minutes, I'm told. I mean, I wasn't really counting, but um, I've learned since it was around that time until the ambulance service could get a first response car out to us with a, a paramedic and a defib. Mm-hmm. So there you are on the, the side of the street in a little town in Surrey yeah. doing chest compressions and rescue breaths until the ambulance arrives. Yes, and that is certainly not what I was expecting to spend my Sunday. And the, the people around, I think, were, there was one really lovely man who I've never managed to track down, but he was sort of sat with me and he was being very encouraging. Um, and there was, as I say, someone on the phone to the ambulance service and then just a group of people, you know, people gather, don't they, when something's going mm. on. Um, yeah, so it didn't feel like that long, but I'm told afterwards it, it was. But I think that's adrenaline, isn't it? That kicks in and you're able to keep going for longer than perhaps you would in a training room on a mannequin. Yes. And how was this chap's state when the ambulance eventually took him away? Well, he was still receiving sort of CPR and defibrillation. And when the full crew turned up to sort of take over, we all took a a bit of a step backwards and kind of let them get on with it. He did look a better colour than when I had found him because he was very deep purple when I started doing CPR. So I think that had improved. But he wasn't responsive. He hadn't got circulation back, but they they took him off in the ambulance and and off they off they whisked him to hospital. And so I was just left standing with a group of people, thinking, "My goodness, that I didn't expect that to happen to me today." And the man, the very lovely man who was sat next to me, said, "The first thing I'm going to do when I get home is book myself on a first aid course because I was here before you and I didn't know what to do, mm. and I don't want to be in that position again." And you just kept doing CPA even though that you thought perhaps he's gone? Yes, because that's what your training tells you to do. And there's never a point where as a lay person you would give up or, you know, you would make that call. That's always a clinical decision further, further down the line. And there's always a chance, you know, even if it's ideal to get a defibrillator on somebody within the first four minutes after cardiac arrest, that's the greatest sort of prognosis for survival. Mm. But... Even if you can't do that, if you can keep doing CPR, then you're still pushing oxygen around the body. You're still keeping all those organs viable until somebody can turn up with a defibrillator. So Mm. there's never a point where you think this is hopeless. But at the same time, obviously, he hadn't kind of come round whilst I was on the scene. So I didn't know what to think. I thought, you know, he was in a very poor state, but I didn't know what had happened to him at that point. And then you jump back in your car with your little son and did. head head back to London. <laughs> yes, I did. So I, I, yeah, I kind of got back in, was like, bye to everybody and, and off I went. But I did actually, I got as far as the station, I did actually pull over and stop and just call my husband because it suddenly kind of hit me that I'd just been doing CPR on somebody and, you know, uh, and I felt a little bit emotional after that and a lot of adrenaline pumping around. So I just sat and talked to him for sort of 10 minutes and then felt okay and then I was all right to drive on and and go back home yeah a little bit running through your mind yeah definitely definitely and I think after anything like that you are thinking did I do it right did I remember my training was there anything else I could have done you know is he okay does he have a family there's all sorts of things that run through your mind and it certainly made me hold my baby a bit closer that night you know an experience like that does affect you you just realize how precious life is you do you do and you realize how on the edge we walk sometimes, you know, how one minute you're out cycling, feeling perfectly fine, and the next you're on the floor and there's a stranger giving you CPR. Mm. And you tried to get in touch with this fellow. 
I did initially. I rang the hospital, but obviously they couldn't tell me anything because I'm not a relative, which is fine. But I knew even from ringing them, well, at least he got that far. At least he was in the hospital, which was a good sign. Um, I did know his name. I knew his name was Keith Aston because somebody had been through his kind of wallet at the scene to try and find, you know, some details of who he was and if he had any medical conditions. So I, I, I knew what his name was, but at that point, that's all I knew about him, that he'd, he'd sort of made it that far. Um, and that, that was as much as they could tell me at the time. And um, can you tell me what happens next? I understand your mum reads an article in a local newspaper. Yes, that's right. So probably about six months later, maybe, I was on holiday and my mum phoned me up in a bit of a a bit of a flap, just saying, oh, my goodness, Joe, I've just read an article in our local newspaper about that man you gave CPR to about Keith Aston. I was like, oh, my goodness, what did it say? And not only was Keith alive and well, but he just cycled 200 miles for the British Heart Foundation. And the newspaper article said his motivation for doing that was that he'd had an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and somebody had stopped at the scene and given him CPR, which has started that chain of survival. And he went on to make a recovery. So it, it was very emotional finding that out, actually, and finding out that not only was he OK, but he was actively using his experience in a positive way. Hmm. And the article said that it was a nurse that stopped. Is that right? It did. It's Yeah, that's right. It said um, a passing nurse stopped and gave CPR. So that motivated my mum to then write to the paper and say, we're so pleased to hear about Mr. Aston's recovery and that he's okay. It was actually my daughter who stopped at the scene. And the reason I'm writing is because she isn't a nurse. She's just a normal person who happened to have been on a first aid course and to know those kind of simple skills to save a life. So I, I'm just writing really to, to encourage anybody else to, to go on a first aid course because you never know when that might happen to you. Mm. And, to make the, and to make the correction. And well, yeah, and to make the correction, and to make the correction, yeah, absolutely. Keeping the journalist honest. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But Keith happened to read that letter in the paper, and he managed to find my because it prints the name and the kind of, I think, the street the person lives in. So he managed to find my mum in the phone book, and it turns out that she lives about 200 metres down the road from him. Hmm. And he rang her and said hello, it's Keith Aston. She was very emotional, very surprised. And he said, I've been looking for your daughter since my cardiac arrest. I've been trying to find out who the person who helped me was. And I would very much like to meet her if you feel she would be amenable to that, which of course my mum said, yes, I'm sure she would. Hmm. So then your mum puts Keith in touch with you? That's right. So initially he wrote me a letter, I think because it's such an emotional experience what he went through and it's so life-changing in so many ways that I think it's quite difficult to say to the person what you want to say to them when you first meet them. So he wrote me a wonderful letter, which I absolutely treasure, just expressing how he felt about my part in his recovery and how he'd been told that he wouldn't have made it to hospital if if CPR hadn't have happened Mm. and how profoundly that had affected him. And that he wanted to do something about it and he wanted to, to teach other people what to do. So we arranged, so he wrote to me and then I wrote back and we arranged to to meet up. And we actually met sort of halfway between London and Farnham in a garden centre hmm. um, a few weeks later. And what was that like? It was lovely. It was, it was bizarre in a way. Um, he got there before me and then I called him when I was there and I'd taken Harry with me. 
and I, I recognised him. Of course, mm. he didn't know who I was. Harry was the, the your son who was in the car when you stopped. That's right, yeah. Mm. So my son Harry was, was there and he came up to me and I think I broke the ice by saying, you look a lot better than the last time I saw you. <laughs> um, and then and then we went on and we went in and sort of had a meal and a chat and he'd brought me some tomatoes from his garden mm. and he baked me a loaf of bread and that became a bit of a recurring theme in our sort of relationship after that. Um, he would very often bring me things he'd grown, which was lovely. Hmm. And you guys have a discussion about... Um wanting to do more because it, it, it struck you that people, the bystanders around Keith on that day were were, were shocked and traumatised and didn't know what to do. Exactly. I think both of us felt that really strongly. And Keith was able to tell me that one of the people that was on the scene before me was a very old friend of his of about 40 years who hadn't even recognised him because he looked so different mm. because he, you know, he, he was gone a different colour and was very, very upset that he didn't know what to do and what action to take and we felt that the skill I'd learned was very simple you know and if more people knew that then more people would be able to help in that situation and that doesn't just help the person that's had the cardiac arrest it also helps the people standing by so so that they feel empowered to do something rather than feeling helpless and that's really important. Mm. And I understand you contacted the British Heart Foundation. We did yes so we were put onto the BHF by a lovely chap called Peter Glover, who's an ambulance um, crew. And he said, why don't you look at running one of their heart start schemes? So we got in touch with the British Heart Foundation and they gave us some brilliant resources and support and training packages, which allowed us to become instructors in emergency life support. So we could run, you know, free classes taught by volunteers to members in our community, teaching them the basics of what to do in an emergency, you know, assessing somebody, putting them in the recovery position if they are breathing and how to do CPR if they're not breathing and what a defibrillator is and how to use one. So mm. it was just what we were looking for, really. It was some, something that we got support with and that we were trained how to train, which was fantastic. And our scheme really took off, you know, from there and we've since trained well over 1500 people just in those classes hmm. as well as doing lots of things in the community like going to fates going into schools giving talks you know we've we've done a lot of cpr training in our local community which is brilliant mm. and also the defibrillators as well i read in the farnham herald the famous farnham herald i read um, <laughs> that uh, your ambitions your ambitious mission is to make Farnham the safest place in the world to have an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest by installing dozens, if not hundreds, of defibrillators around the town. Indeed, that is our ambitious mission and we like it. Um, it's a great it's, mission. It is a good mission, definitely. And I think once when we started after Keith's cardiac arrest, I think there were two public access defibrillators in Farnham. And we've now identified or helped to place over 30. Um, mm. And we've mapped all the existing ones as well. Um, and we obviously work alongside... The ambulance service to let them know where they are too and it's it's really grown what's happened to Keith has paid forward in so many ways and he he spent you know the rest of his time really just paying it forward and training other people and we know people who have directly saved lives as a result of that training so what happened to him really has paid forward mm. you know for so many people so you heard stories of people you train who'd gone on to save others yeah. Uh, so one of our initial trainees, a 
colleague of Keith's in the Lions called Barbara, uh, saved her ex-husband's life by giving him CPR. Sort of weeks after she was trained by us, we've had two other members of our team give CPR to sort of strangers in the street. And just recently, last week, a friend of mine who came on our Heart Start course happened to be at home in Wales and she was able to give CPR and send for a defibrillator for somebody. Um, so it's it's really, we can see the benefits roll out, you know, going forward, which is brilliant. And there's also a, an element of the course which covers choking. And one of the mums at my school saved her seven-year-old son's life when he was choking. And she had to go as far as giving him chest compressions because he stopped breathing. And he is alive directly because she went on that course and she knows hmm. what to do. So because of you and Keith, people are walking around breathing. Well, yeah, because of Keith, really. I mean, I feel like my part in it was, it did kick it all off. But Keith was so dedicated to setting the scheme up. He was the administrator. He, you know, he looked after all the kit. He, he was so passionate about it that he's, I feel that those successes really are down to him and his passion and his vision, which is fantastic. Mm. And beyond the the CPR training you guys did together and, and the defibrillator placements around the town, you and Keith develop a very warm friendship in the family. Your family's become close. Yes, we did. And that was lovely. You know, my kids really loved seeing him and he we'd see each other all the time, as well as the training sessions we, we ran. He'd be popping round with some tomatoes or a loaf of bread. <laughs> you or, love bringing the tomatoes you know, and bread. He did. He honestly grew the best tomatoes. I have never had tomatoes hmm. like that from anywhere else. They were so good. What were they? Were they cherry tomatoes or salad yes. tomatoes? Yes, they were all different varieties of cherry tomatoes that he grew in his greenhouse, mm. and they were very nice. Delicious. Um, yeah, so we, we did develop a really close friendship, and we'd, you know, do things together quite often. And our families would meet up and, you know, met his daughter, Becky, who's who's a friend. And, yeah, it was really nice. Mm. And I've seen some photos of, of Keith um, with your kids and, and with the birthday presents and Christmas presents. Yes. Um, your kids were really fond of him. Yes, really fond. Yeah, they were. Yeah, very, very fond of him indeed. Yeah, he was like a part of the family, which was lovely. Mm. Yeah. And in June 2018, which was about nine years or so after you stopped and did CPR, Keith sadly passed away. He did. He um, did yeah. And can you walk me through that day? I understand that he was meant to be. Um, you guys were doing a training session that evening. We were, we were doing a heart start session. And as I said, Keith was the real kind of driving force. So he had all the kit at his house. He used to print the certificates out and, you know, he'd bring them all down to the, to the class. So we were all kind of, and he was always there early. So it was very unusual for him not to be there. Um, mm. But I did have a call from uh, his partner at the time who rang me to say, look, I've been trying to get hold of Keith and I, and I can't get hold of him. So are you due to see him tonight? And I said, yes. So I said, well, I'll go down and see if he's, you know, at the heart start training room. And she said, she'd let me know if, if she heard anything else. And he'd been out cycling training once more for the London to Brighton for the British Heart mm -hmm. Foundation. And he'd just been doing a 30 mile training ride on his bike. He was so fit. Honestly, he was, mm. he was fitter than I was. He could cycle miles. Did he also um, cycle in his sandals? I've seen photographs. Yeah, he did. Yeah. I think there was one London to Brighton he completed where he was wearing sandals yeah good so, on him you know and I loved his bike his bike's lovely it's like got kind of loopy handles and yeah he he was really he loved that bike he was a lot of character he, 
Yeah, and he didn't drive if he could help it. He was, you know, he cycled everywhere. But so anyway, this particular day, I then went down. I was on my way down, I think, to the to the training room when I got a call from Jean to say that Keith had suffered a stroke and he'd been found by a member of the public and he'd been taken into hospital in Southampton. Um, and so I was a bit floored by that. I didn't know what to do, but Keith had given me uh, or told me where there was a key for his house. And he always said, if I can't make it to a class, you must make sure all the equipment gets there. Mm. So I thought, okay, what, would he want us to cancel this class or would he want us to carry on with the class? And he definitely would have wanted us to carry on. So I went and picked up the kit and, and we did the session, you know, hopeful that we would get some good news at the end of it, that he would be okay. Mm, but sadly, he didn't make it. No, he didn't. Um, it was too, the damage was too great, really, um, to to make it through, unfortunately. Um but in terms of a of a way to go, I, I think that riding your bike on a nice sunny day, road ahead of you, lots of things to look forward to. I think if there's a way to choose it, that would probably be mm. the way he would have picked. Mm. Riding his bike and um, yeah. le- on his way to a, a CPR training course. Um, yeah. and, and because of that day when you stopped and, and did CPR, Keith had another nine years of life. He did have another nine years of life and they were full and active years that he spent so positively, you know, and developed all those wonderful relationships with my family and my children and trained other people who then went on to save lives. So Mm -hmm. he did an incredible amount in that time. And you have a nice last memory of Keith, don't you? Oh, I do. Yeah, I have a really nice last memory of him. Um, It was, I think two days before so it was on the Monday and our class was due to be on the Wednesday and I'd been out training a local football club so I picked up the kit I'd been over I'd done some CPR training with them and I was dropped the kit back to Keith and he said just come in the garden for a minute for for a drink and I thought oh yeah do you know what I will you know I'm always was always rushing around being busy but I thought no I will let's go and sit in the garden and we sat in the garden and we talked and quite literally smelt the roses. He was like, look, my roses are lovely. He loved growing roses. So we had all a look at his flowers and we sat down and we had such a lovely conversation, which even before he had a stroke really stuck in my mind as a moment that was special and lovely. And he talked about his life and about how happy he was with everything and, you know, how life takes you on different paths and, you know, he spoke about his daughter, he spoke about his house, he he was really, it was a lovely, lovely hour that we spent just talking about all the good things. Mm. And that's such a wonderful last memory for me, because it, it was just a, even at the time, I clocked it as a lovely moment. Mm. And his daughter, Becky, asked you to speak at the funeral. She did, yes. And I was very honoured and, and touched that she did that. And it was it was lovely to to stand up there and talk about all the things that Keith had achieved in the time I'd known him, because obviously there were people there that had known him for a much longer time than me, but that specific area of his life, all the heart start and defibrillator and CPR work he did was so important to him, and it was really great to to be able to sort of honour him in that way and speak about all the incredible things he'd achieved in those extra nine years. Mm. And then the following year, in 2019, um, 
when you and I meet uh, to do some filming for the British <laughs> yes. Art Foundation's um, London to Brighton uh, yes. promotions. Um, you were doing the ride in honour of Keith. Can you tell me about that? I was, and I was, I was doing it because, as I said, Keith was such a keen cyclist and he used to cycle absolutely everywhere. And because he was training to do the London to Brighton, you know, in the month that he died, he was planning to do the London to Brighton. Mm. And I just felt like I would like to do that to remember him. It was a bit of a challenge for me because I hadn't been on a bike since I was a kid hmm. and I'd never learned how to use gears. So, Joe. It, no, honestly, I hadn't. Um, so the first time I got on a proper bike, I was a bit like, what do I do with this? I've hmm. literally got no idea. Um, I tried cycling up this little road, which wasn't even a hill and I couldn't get to the top of it. It was so embarrassing. But but I decided to do that and to like give myself a challenge Um and it made me realise actually how fit Keith was to cycle everywhere and how not fit I was. Mm. But um, it was great. So I um, borrowed a friend's bike and we put a team together for the British Art Foundation for the London to Brighton. And we all got really excited and started fundraising for it and did some training, which, as I said, to begin with, was extremely painful. Um, I remember one ride where I ended up in the middle of nowhere because Google Maps had taken me down a farm track. <laughs> Uh, my battery was dying and my chain fell off. So I was really like, this is testing me here. Mm. Um, but it was great. And then I was speaking to Becky, um, Keith's lovely daughter, Becky, and she said, I think you should do the ride on my dad's bike. Mm. And that uh, was a very emotional moment. And she lives in the West Country and so does my uncle. So we arranged for him to bring the bike up so I could finish doing the training on his bike and actually complete the ride on Keith's bike, which was so brilliant and lovely. so lovely of her mm. to let me do that you didn't wear sandals like Keith I didn't wear sandals no I was a bit too worried about my toes mm. for that but um but no we 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 did the ride and it was great it was such a brilliant day and I'd set myself the challenge of riding up Ditchling Beacon I was mm. like I am not going to get off the bike till I get to the top and I was very proud of myself because I just about managed it so that was that was a really good moment. Well done, Joe, and, and well done to the team for getting through it <laughs> yeah. and, and raising some um, some good money and doing it in Keith's honour. Yeah. Keith's motto uh, was, don't yes. be a bystander. It was. It was. It, it kind of sums up how he lived his life in the time that I knew him and how I want to live the rest of mine, which is to not stand by when someone needs your help. You know, and what I would say is even if you think you can't be of assistance, even if you're not sure, even if you've got all those doubts running through your head, stop, stop and ask if you can help. If you can't, fine, but it might be there's something you can do that will make such a critical difference to somebody and will change your life in a way that you won't imagine. Mm. And meeting Keith really did set your life on a new course. Completely. It completely turned it on its head. You know, when I met him, I was an administrator in a law firm. Um, I was just, you know, I enjoyed my job, but I didn't particularly have a sort of passion or a goal. And it really turned my life on its head. And starting off as being a volunteer trainer for the British Heart Foundation, I then became a first aid trainer. And then I became a community first responder. And this September, sort of 12 years later, I start at Surrey University doing a paramedic science degree. So mm. it's entirely changed the course of my life completely for the better. And it's 
it's I feel lucky and humble and honoured that I was able to have that experience and to be doing the things that I'm doing now. Mm. I hope to be a voice like Keith was for the importance of CPR, for the importance of defibrillators and to be able to speak up in my community and make people aware and make it the safest place it can be, you know. And we set up a defibrillator fund in Keith's honour, actually, called the Aston Defibrillator Fund, which looks at the provision and maintenance and placement of defibs in the Farnham area, because mm. that was something Keith was so keen on. So it's great to be working alongside, you know, people to to achieve that as well. Mm. Finish this sentence for me, Joe. Mm-hmm. CPR is important because... Because there's nothing greater you can give somebody than their life back. So it's important because you are empowered to know what to do, because you can give somebody a second chance and because you can be that critical difference to somebody else between calling for help and help arriving. What happens in that time is crucial to that person's recovery. And CPR is a simple skill. Anybody can learn it. It's not difficult and it can be the literal difference to somebody between life and death. And if anyone is um, happens to be in a situation where someone's collapsed and, and CPR is needed and a defib is there, um, what would you say to people who, who might be afraid or scared of using a defibrillator? Not to be. Honestly, defibrillators are so user-friendly. They are. They talk to you. They tell you what to do. There's pictures. There's just three steps. All you need to do is open it and turn it on. Anyone that can use an iPhone, anyone that can use a TV remote can use a defibrillator. You don't need any training and you cannot do any harm. It will only shock somebody in cardiac arrest, so you cannot get it wrong. It's not possible. So the only thing it can do is help. And if you can get a defib on somebody within the first four or five minutes of, of them having a cardiac arrest, their chances of surviving that event leap from around 1% up to 60 or 70. So they make a critical, critical difference. Mm. So I've, I found a quote from you online uh, where you said, um, since the incident, I've turned my passion into my career. Yes. Which I guess is what you were just alluded to earlier. But <laughs> it's, it, um, it really is that uh, your life now is dedicated to, um, as was Keith's, first aid and, and helping others learn how to save lives. Indeed, absolutely. And it's it's something we're, you know, teaching children, we're hoping to roll it out through the generations and just empower everybody to have those skills and to know what to do. Mm. Joe, is there anything you'd like to add? Really only to encourage anybody who may be listening to go on a first aid course. You know, it's probably the most important three days I've ever spent in my life. Mm. And you don't have to go on a three day course. You could go on a drop in session. You could watch a video. You could learn from the TV. But if you take away anything from this, it's be prepared to be in a situation you didn't expect to be in mm. and give yourself the confidence and the skills to know what to do if somebody needs your help and mm. don't be a bystander. What I was going to ask earlier was, um, were you shaken up after that incident for, for a while um, emotionally? And, and if so, um, how did you get through that? I was. I think I thought about it a lot. I ran through it in my head quite a lot. Um, and I certainly had a lot of adrenaline pumping around. But I I guess I spoke to people, which was helpful, you know, to be able to talk it through. But it did. I think it triggered something in me that was very positive. And I think I didn't feel 
disturbed by it. I didn't feel traumatized by it. I felt quite empowered because mm. I'd been able to give some help. So it was really, a, a, even from then, even when I didn't know what the prognosis was, it was a positive experience because I felt I'd been able to do something. Mm. Have you spoken to people who have done CPR and um, the person hasn't made it through? Yes, I have actually. I've, there's been a few people that have contacted me over the years because they've had that experience um, because obviously they know I've had a similar experience and also because we we run this CPR group. Um, I had a friend quite recently actually who gave CPR in our local area to somebody who had collapsed. He was the first on scene and we spent quite a while talking about it and and sort of talking it through and talking through all the different emotions because it's obviously it's not an experience that many people have. Mm. Um, And just last week a friend of mine that I mentioned earlier that gave CPR to somebody um, when she was at her home in Wales. Um, again, it's good to be able to talk through it and to process it because it can affect people in different ways, definitely. Because mm, some people might feel like they've failed if the person doesn't live. They might, but I really encourage people not to feel that way. And, you know, if you've given CPR to somebody, you've done everything that you can do as one human to another, and you should walk away from that feeling that, you know, and that... You've done your best, not only for that person, but for their family, for everybody that loves them. You've stopped and tried to help. So when we teach CPR in our classes, we say that success isn't defined by the outcome. Okay, success is an attempt. That's success because you have stopped and you've tried your best for somebody Mm -hmm. and that's all you can do. So stop, have a go because something is much better than nothing because if you do nothing, they're probably going to die. Yeah, absolutely. You can't make it any worse. If someone's had a cardiac arrest, you cannot make it any worse by trying to help them. Mm. The only way to make it worse is not to do anything. Yeah, and uh, push hard on the sternum and don't worry about breaking ribs. Absolutely. Hard and fast, as Vinnie Jones says in the advert, (laughs) um, in the centre of the chest, to the tune of staying alive. Yes. Um, Yes, and just keep going. And the ambulance service are brilliant. You're never going to be on your own because you'll have called them for help anyway, and they will talk you through what to do. They'll give you the rate to push at, you know, and they'll, they'll talk you through it. And if you have somebody else with you who can go and get a defibrillator, the ambulance service will be able to tell you where the nearest public access one is. So mm. if you're giving CPR to somebody and someone else says, what can I do to help? Then you can say, right, ask the ambulance service where the nearest defib is, and then they can run off and get that. Yes. And also just um, in light of uh, Danish footballer Christian Eriksen's collapse um, the other day at the Euros, um, yeah. when it tragically went down, but the silver lining there is it, it's uh, spurred a lot of people into action to learn CPR and become aware of what they should do. It has. It has. And it again, you know, obviously sad that it happened to him, but it really highlighted that chain of survival and how important those first few minutes are. You know, he was so lucky to have been on the football pitch when that happened because he got immediate... So, so it played out perfectly. So the, the captain went over, immediately saw there was something wrong. He called for help. The help came running. They identified he wasn't breathing. They started CPR and he had immediate defibrillation. And he was responsive by the time he left the pitch because it all went into play so beautifully and so quickly. And that is a great example of of how it can work if people take action really swiftly. Mm-hmm. Well said. Well, Joe, thank you very much uh, for talking with us here and, and we wish you all the very best with your um, your current uh, career and, and your uh, up- upcoming um, pursuits in, in the you. first aid and, and life-saving world. Um, thank you very much. And uh, hope to talk to you soon. Indeed. It's been a pleasure to talk to you as always. All right. Cheers, Joe. 
Keith was one of the 30,000 people to have an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest each year in the UK, and it's very unlikely he would have got an extra nine years of life if Joe hadn't have stopped her car, took control of the situation, and started CPR. Only one in 10 people survive an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, but doing CPR with a defibrillator can, in some cases, more than double the chance of survival. So, if you want to learn CPR, which I think you should, you'll find all the information and easy to follow videos on the How You Can Help page of our website, bhf.org.uk. And during the COVID pandemic, remember, just do chest compressions, no rescue breaths. It's all laid out clearly on the website. And if you've got any questions about your heart or circulatory health, call the BHF's heart helpline to speak with a nurse between nine to five on Monday to Fridays on 0300 330 3311 or email hearthelpline at bhf.org.uk. You'll also find useful information in the episode notes on what the BHF is doing to improve access to defibrillators around the UK. See you next time on The Ticker Tapes.